Hey everybody, this is Jonas, founder of Stackshare, and this is the first official Stackshare podcast. Uh, we got a bunch of emails from people saying that they'd love to hear the audio from the tech stack interviews. So we're going to start posting them here. Uh, every month we'll sit down with a new startup and talk to them about how they build products and how they ship code. Uh, so first up, we have farm logs. Hope you guys enjoy it, and thanks for tuning in. Well, do you want to just start off with a little bit of background on yourselves? Just introduce yourselves. Sure. Um, I'm Brad. I'm the co-founder and CTO here at Farmlux. Uh, Jesse and I have uh, worked together since uh, junior year of high school, and uh, after college, we decided to start Farmlux together. Um, I'm Chris Schneider. I'm the technical front-end lead for Farmlogs. I've known Brad and Jesse, I think, since my second or third year of college. I've worked for them a couple years prior to starting Farmlogs and joined them uh, shortly after graduating. Very cool, very cool. So can you talk a little bit about how Farmlogs started? Sure. So I mentioned that Jesse and I had been working together since junior year of high school. Um, so we had been building websites for this one class that we got to take that year. And we realized, hey, we can build these websites for school and win these competitions with this. Why don't we just go build websites for money? Um, so that's what we did is we started consulting. Um, and so that was something we did throughout college, uh, doing consulting jobs, making a little bit of money off of it. Um, but we realized that after we graduated that we needed a little uh, something a little bigger to be able to support us afterwards. Um, and we knew that the software for farmers problem existed. Um, we had at that time been uh, building software for a grain elevator. And then all these farmers started asking us, hey, when can we start using it? When can we start using it? And so we realized that the farmers themselves had this big unsolved problem, uh, that they needed someone to build software to come along and help fill in that gap. Um, so we applied to YC uh, with the idea for Farmlogs, uh, got in, and uh, built the company up from there. Oh, okay. So really, you started off building websites for farmers. Um, not specifically websites for farmers. Okay. Um, just general websites for anybody, really. Uh, okay. Any business in the community. But then uh, we, through a grain elevator that we were building software for, we realized the problem was much bigger than just that one grain elevator. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. Can you talk a little bit about what that first product was? Yeah, sure. Um, so originally when we uh, applied to YC, we didn't have much of anything in terms of uh, product. Uh, it was just this really drag and drop, black and white interface of uh, dragging this tractor out of this field, things like that. It uh, didn't really do a whole lot. Um, and essentially, as we uh, kind of got into YC, they, they brought let us in anyways. Uh, we had shown a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, potential with a lot of the other stuff we were doing. And so uh, that's when we really started building it up. Um, in the beginning, it was just this basic CRUD app uh, that uh, basically let you to create your fields, create your activities, and not much else. Um, the front end was uh, built using Backbone.js, which was pretty popular at the time. Uh, and we had a pretty... Uh, client-heavy single-page web app, and the back end was written in CakePHP. Um, it was a really simple, lightweight uh, way for us to get the, uh, the CRUD portion of it off the ground initially. Um, Long-term, not the same story, but initially that's where we started. Gotcha. Okay, so the idea for that first iteration was really you guys wanted to help farmers just keep track of their books? Yeah, absolutely. They've got these big record books they keep. They just go sit on a shelf, and we wanted to bring all that data and uh, put it in a computer so that they could look back and analyze it. Gotcha. And were they, at the time, were they using anything else, Was it or was it literally pen and paper? 
So everything else uh, was stuck in the 90s. Uh, it's all this nasty Windows form desktop software um, that still gave them some utility, so they used it. Um, farmers are actually uh, quite early adopters of technology. Uh, yeah. They've got a lot of different stuff going on with their operation, and they'll use anything that helps them be more efficient. Uh, they're very business-minded like that. Um, and so they were making good or making do with what they had, uh, but there's plenty of room for improvement. And so, uh, they were just eager to start coming in when we built something better. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. So it was a basic CRUD app, uh, using backbone on the front end and cake PHP on the back end. Um, where was this hosted? Uh, this was hosted on Heroku. Um, okay. <clears throat> in YC, we got Heroku discounts, and so I uh, went ahead and uh, set all that up to start using them. Um, and it was very easy to just get push and deploy onto Heroku and for that to run on there. Um, they also had their Heroku Postgres service. You just clicked a button and spun up a Postgres instance, and so that's where we uh, stored all of our data as well in Heroku Postgres databases. Okay, very cool. So, for the again, back to the the primary use case here was folks were using this on the desktop? Uh, they had been using other software on the desktop, yep. Um, okay. We uh, were able to build a web application that they could use on their desktops then uh, after we had uh, built uh, the initial early beta versions of farm logs um, and okay. we're starting to use that to record their data. Gotcha, okay. And um, so what did the next version of the product look like or what did you guys start adding in um, that you found out farmers needed a along with the basic record keeping? Mm -hmm. So kind of that first year was kind of a lot of exploring along uh, those lines of sticking with some of the basic uh, uh, data logging, data creation stuff. Um, a lot of stuff happening in the meantime, raising a seed round. Uh, Chris joined the team, uh, uh, graduated college and joined the team during that time. Um, and it was uh, the spring after uh, YC, a year later, uh, in spring of 2013, where uh, we started building out this rainfall feature. Um, the National Weather Service has uh, rainfall data available uh, for what, uh, how much rain occurred uh, across the United States. I think it's something on like a four-kilometer grid. Uh, and okay. we're able to tell uh, the farmers how much rain they got on their field um, after it happened. So... Um, you wake up in the morning, what we were able to do was send you an email and say, hey, last night while you were asleep, you got half an inch of rain out on these fields. Um, that gives the farmers a lot of very valuable information because the weather is the one thing they can't control and they like being all over that. Um, in addition, it lets you uh, get an idea of where your wettest spots are going to be so that when you go out scouting in the morning, you know uh, which place is most likely to be dry and ready for you to work. Okay, now were they... I assume they were getting this data somehow, right? Mm -hmm. was, it, was it that you just made it sort of push where you'd say, all right, we'll keep you updated and send you that email and sort of bring it into one place? Or what were they using at the time? Yeah, yeah. They used a lot of uh, the typical stuff like, I don't know, the Weather Channel, uh, the, maybe uh, AccuWeather, things like that, uh, to go and check. Um, and those will tell them, like, based on, you know, forecasts and uh, things like that. And obviously, their farmers, they're looking outside and saying, like, yep, it rained last night. Um, that's, uh, you know, things like that. They know that that's going on. What was a little bit unique about us is that we were able to, to like, put a number in front of them. Uh, this is how much rain you get. And that's something that isn't typically provided elsewhere. Uh, that was a little bit unique to what we were offering them. Um, so we were pushing to them on uh, that morning uh, what exactly they had gotten on that field for rain last night. Okay, gotcha. Um, so then you were mixing 
you were basically taking the rainfall data and then some geospatial data that you got from them. Mm-hmm. Or how did you how did you mix the two? What what were you using on the on the geospatial side? Yeah, so <clears throat> a lot of different stuff on that side of things. So uh, a couple sides to that, right? We had the uh, the rainfall data that we were getting in from the National Weather Service, um, and that came in as a shape file that we went and loaded into PostGIS uh, to build this database of what the rainfall picture looked like um, overnight uh, for the United States. Um, so that was one step of it, but the other step was getting the, uh, farmers, uh, location too. So, um, typically we got that when they logged in, um, when they signed up for farm logs, uh, you know, you could just go geocode their IP to figure out roughly where they are to get a little bit better picture of it. We'd ask them for their address and then, um, we'd uh, go and geocode that address. Um, and then we'd have, uh, their location, um, to go off of on that. And then in addition to, by that point, we were having them map out their fields, um, they would go into farm logs and draw out their field on the map. And so we knew based on the um, position there um, what the latitude longitude, uh, longitude coordinates of our field were. And so that we could do this lookup uh, to go and find okay. uh, where exactly um, this rainfall data occurred. Okay, gotcha. Very cool. So you're using PostGIS? Mm-hmm. Awesome. Um, okay, cool. So at this point, we have they've got the record keeping, they've got the weather. Um, well, at least the rainfall, right? About what happened. Now, um, was there any like forecasting in there or was it purely based on like what had happened already? Yeah, no forecasting. Uh, we let the weather companies do the forecasting business. Um, maybe someday, but okay. we're not going to get ourselves stuck in that mess about being the most, most accurate forecasts. We just want to provide them data about what happened. Okay, very cool. Um, and can you talk a little bit about the map aspect of this? Because that was pretty big, right? I guess it, sure. at the same time you guys rolled out like maps in the actual product, or when did that come along? Uh, that that came along shortly after our second iteration. We okay. had done a little bit of design overhaul and helped make the mapping aspect kind of a, a central feature, um, allowing them to start punching in their fields and, and drawing shapes on the map was initially done through uh, a very poor implementation of Google Maps, but but then we were able to um, make some more hires and bring people in who had some mapping, um, map knowledge. Then we started using Mapbox and Leaflet as well. Leaflet was a huge, huge bump in, in feature capability because it, it had uh, Leaflet Draw with better drawing tools. It also had better just just layers that we could draw on top of the map with um, with crop colors and, and also showing where rainfall had, had occurred. Okay, so can you can you sort of describe what the maps were being used for? So a farmer would log in, and then they'd see a map of their actual um, their actual fields, right? Yeah, yeah. Once they once they had gone in and drawn it out, you could zoom out. You can see where all your fields are, as well as what crops they had currently planted um, on them for that year. Oh, okay. So you the farmer would go in and sort of draw out on top of the map a layer that would say, "This is my field." Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. And then initially, Google Maps. You were able to do that with Google Maps. Yeah, it was it was kind of a crude version. It wasn't as customizable as we'd like. Um, okay. Being able to display colors on the map once we had color coded a lot of the commodities like corn, uh, soybeans, mm. and things like that, you really get a better visual distinction of of what your farm looks like. Ah. Okay. Very cool. So then Mapbox came along and just had better layers. 
for the oh yeah, their their tile layers were were much more beautiful. They had they had better color correction and stuff like that. So once you zoom down, they they just looked a lot prettier than than what Google Maps had. And I think they were slightly more updated. Um, I'm not exactly sure what source they were pulling them from, but but uh, back when they first started, they they were still way way better looking than Google Maps. Okay, cool. And then now you're you're still using Mapbox, but with Leaflet. Yep, absolutely. Okay, very cool. So then the product is like now getting to, getting to be sort of like a full suite. You've got record books, you've got the weather, and then now you've got maps that are sort of bringing those two things um, together, or rather bring some of this stuff together. Um, what came after that in terms of the product? Um, we started developing for mobile after that. We, we had a very simple mobile app that we had done uh, or tried to implement with web technologies and it just it, it was kind of a flop and also difficult to maintain and debug. Yeah, once upon a time back in the day uh, when I was the only engineer, um, I went ahead and tried uh, uh, building a web-based uh, or web-based app for the phones. And that kind of failed spectacularly. Um, I'm not super, super uh, skilled on the front end stuff to begin with. And so uh, when we tried doing it on the mobile, um, it just wasn't working out anyways. Um, it turned out to be very, very difficult to uh, architect a web app well on a mobile environment. Uh, we tried a lot of the crossover stuff with uh, like Trigger.io, things like that. Um, and what we realized was to get decent performance out of it, uh, get a decent feel to the app, um, it was going to be pretty much impossible to do uh, with, with some of the uh, HTML5-based mobile apps, and we uh, realized that we were going to need to do some native development to be able to uh, do a better job at that. Okay, and that was, it sounded like that was mainly because of the maps. M maps was a big, maps was a big part of it. It was it was simply just the CRUD forms allowing them to do the record keeping, but we did want we did want a lot of feature parity on mobile. So so we brought we brought in an iOS engineer. He started developing, and then one of our original front end guys he moved to Android and led up that team with I think one other intern, and they eventually started running in parallel, and they just built feature after feature, and now we have full support for maps, and we're doing a lot of. Uh, pulling down of data and showing those on the mobile apps, so you're really getting a lot, a lot similar experience as you get on the web on the mobile devices now. Okay, very cool, very cool. So then, mobile was like a big step though for you guys, right? Because the farmers at that point they were still tied to their desktop, pretty much. Before, yeah, it, it, before it, you had it pretty much seen that way, just because that's all they had available. So we were. We're kind of getting into this new realm of allowing them to just pull pull their devices out of their pocket and be able to even just even just see rainfall um, on their fields in their pocket was was pretty big for them. Gotcha. And for for the mobile side of things, was it mostly you saw that most most folks were using phones, or was it also like tablets? What did you see most? I would say mostly like? devices. Devices are pretty ubiquitous as far as. Adoption. They, everybody's got a cell phone now. They're all smartphones, so nobody has just a tablet, a tablet that they're carrying around all the time. Um, we haven't found the need to um, build for tablets specifically, but we are starting to see a lot of people um, asking for it. Yeah, okay. I mean, tablets has been uh, growing a lot in share, but like Chris mentioned, smartphones were the single most ubiquitous device. I mean, everybody had one. Uh, they all wanted uh, to be able to use apps on their phone to help them out with their farming operations. 
Um, and so that was uh, kind of the thing with smartphones first. Uh, tablets uh, are important. They're growing in importance. Um, uh, but they, they kind of came second after smartphones. Okay. And you guys actually targeted Android first, right? Uh, I, I would say that iOS was actually a, a bit faster as an adoption, but, but we, did an adoption. See, okay. we, did see, we did see a lot of need for Android as well. And we, and we try to keep them both um, pretty much in, in sync with what features are available on mobile. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Um, so I guess that, that takes us to now, right? And then right now you guys have... Um, is there any other sort of functionality you want to talk about before we dive into some of the other aspects like data? Sure. Um, we, we start pulling in a lot of data from other sources. We, we kind of hit this pivot point where we realized we didn't just want to be um, the place for the farmers to enter information. We also want to be the place where they can get information from us. So we started pulling in some Sergo soil data that the government had done. They did a huge survey across the nation um, a while back. We also allow them to upload shapefiles of their fields that give us, give us the ability to upload their fields and draw them for them instead of them having to do it themselves. Ah, okay, yeah. So let's talk about that. Because there's a bunch of different data sources um, because everyone was sort of using something different. So one of them was the government itself, right? Mm -hmm. That was USDA. Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of different government data sources. I mentioned the National Weather Service being one. Okay. <clears throat> but the USDA uh, also has a lot of data available, too. They had the, uh, the soil information that we were able to load from them, uh, containing a survey about all the soil across the U.S. Um, there's also third-party services, too. Uh, we were able to go to some third parties to get some market data. Um, we're also able to go to the, uh, some third parties now and get some satellite data. Um, is one of the new data streams we're working on integrating. Um, so you had the government as one source, um, some third-party private sources, and also too we're starting, or we've always been uh, from the beginning collecting data directly from the farmers, and we're starting to get a little bit more into that as well, where we're collecting not only data they enter manually, but also collecting data based on what their smartphone is doing, um, based on uh, where what's going on on their tractor. So we're able to collect data off of the uh, bus on the tractor uh, and directly upload it into our system where instead of carrying around USB sticks from their field computers, uh, they are able to just have it show up in their farm logs based on what they're doing out in the field. Um, additionally, oh, cool. just with the smartphone, able to grab uh, G or GPS location too, be able to tell when you're out in your field and be able to automatically tell you, hey, you were out in your field today. Uh, it looks like you uh, decided to go out and plant that field there. Ah, okay, okay. So you're collecting information from um, their mobile devices, mm -hmm. and then you mentioned tractors as well. How are you yep. collecting data from tractors? Yep, tractors are actually highly networked. Um, there's sensors on them that uh, continuously feed in, just like your car, um, as to what exactly is going on in your tractor. Um, and the most important part that we care about is that your implements, uh, so for example, if you got a planter hooked up on back, it's telling you what rate you're seeding at. So we're able to record uh, how many seeds per acre you're starting to drop in at this point. And we're able to use that data later on to tell you uh, a little bit more uh, about how you performed uh, in terms of yield and where you might be able to make adjustments to do better next year. Oh, so the tractors are already collecting this data? It's already on the tractors, yep. But then it goes on their field computer in the cab 
and it's on this uh, USB stick that they have to move out of there and then figure out what the heck they do with that USB stick, right? Um, we're able to just directly take it from the tractor and present it back to them in a nice, easy-to-use way. Gotcha. Okay, and how do you do that? How do you take it from the tractor? Yeah, sure. Um, this is one of the things that's still in development right now, um, but what we have is a device that we're able to put into the tractor um, to be able to uh, broadcast the data out of the tractor and uh, be able to upload it straight to farm logs. And so uh, that data about their uh, planting rates, about their yield comes in, and we're able to go and present that back to them uh, in farm logs. Ah, okay. So previously, um, they'd go to the tractor and I guess they'd take it out they take the data out of the actual tractor somehow? What would they use yeah, before? There'd be like a flash memory card in there, a uh, USB okay. key uh, when those came around. Uh, you pull that out and then you uh, put it into some other software. Um, uh, I know you mentioned there was some nasty desktop software that was able to do some stuff with it, maybe hand it over to their agronomist. Their agronomist would do something with it and give it back to them, uh, things like that. Um, but what they use it for is it does uh, enable them to see a yield map of these are the spots where you got the most yield out of your field. And so you're able to take that information, um, and especially with us, with having uh, compiled all these other data sources on rainfall, on soil, um, all of this other information that we're collecting, we're able to kind of aggregate that and do more in-depth analysis uh, than they've been able to do before about um, what exactly is causing uh, negative performance in various sections of their field and uh, what they can do to improve it. Uh, yeah, no, that's really cool because... It sounds like what's happening is now they're they're getting all of the they had sort of these pieces right they had the the record keeping they had rainfall they had some of these things uh, like in isolation but now they can sort of do it all in one place and get a better view of of how they're actually doing so that's really cool. Mm -hmm. Exactly, we're bringing together all the data about farmers' fields and putting it together in one place uh, so that they can uh, use it to farm their fields more profitably. Right, so more of like a full-on uh, management system. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about uh, some of the other data sources? What, so what sorts of things were you seeing farmers um, give you, right, like in terms of the data that they had? Oh, sure. They tried uh, giving us a lot of different stuff. Uh, one of the big uh, pain points for them was creating the fields, and a lot of them had shape files already. Uh, indicating the boundaries of all their fields. And so one uh, source that we uh, created was uh, a uploader to import your shape files uh, to be able to automatically create your fields for you. Um, so when we created that, they started giving us all kinds of other stuff. Um, they'd send us in just like PDFs of like drawings of their fields. Um, like uh, they'd send us in weird pictures. Um, they'd send us in uh, yield data as well. Um, so after they started sending all this yield data, we realized, hey, we should just maybe uh, support a yield uploader too. So we did that. Um, a lot of different data sources, uh, or a lot of different uh, types of data the farmers decided to uh, start uploading once we exposed that uploader capability to them. Gotcha. Okay. And Google Earth was in there? Yep. Yep. There was some uh, KML files. Some of them had previously drawn out their fields in Google Earth, and that okay. resulted in these KML files that uh, were they were able to upload to import the field boundaries. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. So maybe we can talk a little bit about um, the actual uh, the actual stack, right? So in the beginning, you were pretty much just using PHP, right? Cake PHP um, with yeah. Backbone, and then. So what does it look like now? The, right. At least the so web presence. 
there's a pretty long journey along that way. So um, when when we started, we had this Cake PHP CRUD app that was very, very straightforward, very simple. Um, we accepted the data that was submitted to us, and then we sent it back for rendering on the client. Um, the issue that we started hitting as we started growing a little bit was that we were having a lot of difficulty testing things. It was very, very um, unreliable um, in terms of what the PHP app was doing, making sure that it performed consistently. Um, and when we started to try to write unit tests, it turned out to be very difficult. Um, and so we started looking around at other options. Uh, we played with Python for a little bit um, because of a lot of the geospatial uh, utilities that existed with Python. Um, we didn't specifically end up needing them, um, and we still uh, had some issues where um, you know testing stuff existed for Python, um, but it wasn't necessarily as convenient. Um, so uh, one day I was just kind of looking around, and I finally decided to start digging into some closure, um, just simply because a lot of people around us had uh, talked a lot about uh, a Lisp, uh, had been really big fans of it. Obviously, Paul Graham being one. Uh, we had uh, Aaron Iba, who is uh, one of the YC partners while we were there. Um, uh, there was also, you know, just people like Eric Scott Raymond and things like that too that have said over time, like, hey, uh, that have really put an emphasis on uh, you, you should always try to learn programming languages that are going to teach you something new and uh, always kind of highlighting Lisp. And so it's uh, finally a moment to look into and say, okay, what is this actually about? And so uh, I went in and tried it out and was able to recreate the CRUD portion of the app uh, in less than a week. Um, and it was really, really quick and easy to do. Um, and not only that, the biggest part of it was that it enabled us to test it very, very easily. All the unit testing uh, uh, functionality and closure just made it more so of a joy to write unit tests than anything else, um, which was really, really surprising because usually that's the boring part, but right. it's so easy to do that you proved immediately that your code worked correctly. Um, and it kind of forced you to write good code as well. So um, after having such a good experience with Clojure, we decided to uh, continue um, migrating things into the new Clojure application, uh, which is what we're running on now. Okay, and this was, when, when was this? Um, this was in the, uh, at the end of uh, the summer of 2013. Uh, okay. was when we started uh, this migration. Okay, uh, so this so. was well after, I guess, not only the CRUD, but after some of the rainfall and mapping had already been done. Yep, some of that original uh, stuff had been written in uh, some of the, it was in Python. A lot of the CRUD was over in PHP. And right. so you notice that's three different stacks there. Um, right. So we uh, did have kind of a transition period where we said, hey, um, it doesn't make sense to do a big, huge rewrite. Um, we'll waste tons and tons of time getting caught up on that. Yeah. So what we did was we set up an Nginx uh, 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 server to act as the router there um, to point different uh, URL routes at different applications. So as we moved things off of KPHP into the Clojure app, we would simply just point the route over to the uh, correct backend to handle it. Um, so that's how, over time, we were able to uh, move off of just this CakePHP app um, and start slowly moving things into uh, this Clojure application uh, and still leverage that Python application as well without having to incur this massive rewrite. Gotcha. Okay. So at one point, you actually had three different apps running on Heroku? Yeah. You have three was... different apps running on Heroku. Okay. So then one was the CakePHP CRUD app. The other was Clojure for what specifically originally? Uh, Clojure took over CRUD from CakePHP uh, pretty okay. quickly. Um, okay. And so there were just uh, eventually fewer and fewer things left running on it. Uh, we finally killed off this one news feed that was there the other day, and I think that was one of the last responsibilities of the PHP app. Um, so most of its work has been taken over by uh, other applications now. Gotcha. Okay. So right now I guess you're running 
three different apps on Heroku? Um, nope. Now we're um, entirely over on Clojure at the moment. Um, there, oh, in a single app. Okay. There are a few background processes that are written in Python, um, but for the most part, we are running on Clojure. Um, so that's uh, uh, been very, very helpful to us. Um, it's something we'll probably continue to do. Um, but there are a few specific cases where just the uh, geospatial libraries in Python, uh, some of the scientific analysis stuff there is very useful to us. And so um, from time to time, as Python's more useful, we sometimes use that too. Gotcha. Right, because you do have some of the data science stuff going on. So you're using R and Python for that? Yeah, yeah. Our data science team uh, kind of models some stuff out in R sometimes, uh, uh, Python, if uh, that's more sufficient for that situation. And so uh, we're able to uh, have the data science team kind of pull in the satellite imagery and start um, playing around with it, start trying to uh, identify what algorithms uh, we should start using to process this imagery. Um, and then we're able to uh, build that up using, uh, uh, they'll start specking out with R or whatever. Um, maybe they'll use Python and then we'll be able to implement it eventually on our side. And so maybe we'll use Clojure, maybe we'll use Python, depending on what's most appropriate. Gotcha. Okay. Very cool. Um, and do you want to talk a little bit, Chris, do you want to talk a little bit about the front end? You guys were using Backbone originally, right, for all the web? Yep. Uh, all the web originally was written uh, in Backbone and CoffeeScript. Um, a majority of it still is. Um, we've actually done a new feature rewrite using React to to start kind of expand our uh, how we how we use the front end, how we how we expect to move forward, especially with a lot of the data that clients are consuming. Um, we ran into some rendering issues, having to um, mess with data binding and stuff like that. So we started playing with React and found that it was really really nice flow. For, for how the data comes in and how the UI states update. So we've been pretty happy with, um, with using that. Okay, so you started using React, but you, you're still using Backbone as well. Yeah, we, the components we, the, the models, excuse me, the features we use of Backbone are mostly just the models and the collections. Right. The, the rest adapters they have built in, they just play really nice with our Crowd API and it's it, no sense in reinventing the wheel. In that point, React doesn't have any sort of data flow for interfacing with an API yet. Right. I actually heard that they are working on something, but uh, but we'll see how that plays out. Okay, cool. So, and and that's all also on mobile too, right? You guys have mobile web. Uh, actually, or, I don't think we have mobile web. Uh, oh, it is on new. our okay. timeline to do a responsive app. I don't think okay. we'll. Um, I think we're. <laughs> I think we're just. Hoping Isn't that, that part our, of the big redesign that Sam's been working on is that we do have a little bit more of responsive uh, capabilities. Yeah, the biggest thing is the maps. The maps trying to get those to work on mobile has been kind of difficult. Yeah. Um, okay. Leaflet does work with mobile, but doing the leaflet draw stuff where you're actually being able to um, use touch gestures to make shapes for your fields is is not the easiest. But um, but we are working on it. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you guys have the native app. So that's probably not too much of a priority. It's not, it's not much of a priority, but it, 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 it definitely should be done. You find people who even still are using, even though we have the mobile apps, they still want to use their mobile browser just because it's what they're comfortable with. Okay. Gotcha. Um, and so for the farmers, they're, they're actually giving you a bunch of different files and you guys are just throwing that in S3. Or where do you, how do you guys? Yep, we store we store all those in an S3 bucket. When when the farmers either want to upload shape files, even even images if they're taking notes, uh, we do store those in S3. 
And we interface that with File Picker IO for doing file uploads. It's just a really nice SDK. Uh, they even think, I think they have native SDKs. So we use it on all three of the clients to, to move files into uh, S3. Okay, cool. And um, for the database side of things, Postgres all around? Yep. <clears throat> Entirely using Postgres on the back end and uh, a lot of Postgres as well for doing a lot of the geospatial analysis. Okay. Um, and that's on Heroku, of course, right? Yep, all running on Heroku Postgres, except that we started to kind of uh, um, move a little bit of it into Amazon RDS, and that's probably the direction we'll keep going. Um, we started hitting some of the limits uh, with the Heroku Postgres platform. Uh, so <clears throat> some of these data sets that we're using, each time we get a new one, uh, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger. Um, they haven't really gotten to a size where it's uh, unmanageable within a database, uh, a DBMS, um, but they are getting in the like multiple terabytes um, range at this point, um, mm. and Heroku's uh, cap is at one terabyte. Um, that's the biggest plan they offer, um, gotcha. and so Postgres is capable of handling that much at the right query volume. Um, but uh, on Heroku Postgres, that's what we were capped at. Um, so we started playing around with Amazon uh, RDS um, because to get even get to one terabyte, you're already paying Heroku thousands of dollars a month, um, right. and so. We uh, set up an RDS application and we're able to um, replicate that same uh, that same database there with uh, the correct space requirements for our needs, correct RAM, correct processing, only for a few hundred dollars a month, um, and able to set all that up. Um, so we've started moving more and more of our read-only data sets over to Heroku Postgres. Uh, okay. Um, or not Heroku Postgres, from Heroku Postgres to Amazon RDS. Right. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you're you're just going to continue to start ingesting more data um, the more farmers you get, right? Yes, not only ingesting more data, but always adding new data sources as well. Um, just with a lot of satellite imagery we're adding now, uh, being able to take the tractor data in, uh, always finding new data sources to be able to provision for the farmers, and so always needing to spin up new databases to store that. Very cool, very cool. Um, so maybe we could talk a little bit about uh, your actual workflow. What do you guys have set up in terms of um, your local environments and then all the way to production? Can you talk a little bit about how, what that looks like? Sure. It varies a little bit from team to team, um, but we're all running Git here. Um, we're all using GitHub repositories. Uh, we have CircleCI set up to be able to do uh, continuous integration uh, to automatically run our unit tests there. Um, so a lot of uh, integration on that end. And we've mentioned Heroku too, where it's as simple as push to deploy on that. Um, and it runs a little bit different team to team. Different teams have different preferences. Different people on teams have different preferences. So I think on the back end, like there's people using Vim, there's people using Emacs, there's people using uh, actually, Sublime. Yeah, uh, I don't think anybody yeah. on the back end uses Sublime, but I know you guys like. No, it on the front end, we're pretty much all Sublime. Uh, Sublime, yeah. Atom. Um, I think those are pretty much the only two that we use. Gotcha. Okay. And then, are you guys using VMs locally? Or no? um, I don't think we're using VMs locally. We're pretty the repositories you're able to pull down and spin up. Like on the front end, we use uh, a node server to proxy all our requests to our staging server, so we don't have to actually run like a local instance of an API. Um, they're all able okay. to play pretty nice together. Okay, cool. So you've got the you've got staging and prod. Um, iOS and the mobile side of things? Are you? Is it the same setup? 
Um, similar um, stuff, yeah. Whatever the IDE they use for iOS development and Android development is, um, they've got that set up. But they also um, have a lot of their uh, tests on that side too. And so they have uh, integrated some things like Jenkins uh, on the iOS side to be able to um, go and process uh, their unit tests, automatically run those, um, automatically do their builds for them. Uh, so they do have a Jenkins uh, test server set up. Okay, cool. Um, and for exceptions, what are you guys using to, to catch yeah, those? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for doing a lot of our debugging, logging a lot of exception information, we uh, were pretty early adopters of Bugsnag. Um, they uh, were able to support PHP very easily for us. Um, and they also had a number of different platforms where it was just easy uh, to go set it all up. Um, not many people had done a good job at uh, doing a lot of the exception tracking at that point. There were services like Airbrake. Um, uh, there was something called RescueJS. Um, there were okay. so many different uh, um different services that we tried at the beginning and uh, just couldn't find anything great. And then uh, finally Bugsnag came along and we were able to uh, start going with them. Um, and they were just uh, great. Those guys are just fanatics at uh, being able to just build out the best uh, air tracking platform they can. They're uh, constantly making improvements to it. So um, we were able to really uh, uh, start getting a lot of value when we switched over to Bugsnag for our air tracking. Very cool. Very cool. Um, and messaging. Internally, how do you guys just communicate in the office? Slack. <laughs> we moved over. We started using Slack after, after I think, HipChat. Mm -hmm. um, HipChat had a couple days where they were just going down day after day, and we just kind of got sick of it. So we, we switched over to Slack, and a couple people who were gone came back from the weekend and realized that everybody had moved completely away from HipChat. So that's what we use exclusively now. Okay. So then everything is sort of fed into their exceptions, pushes, all that stuff. Yep, all yep. the deploy hooks and, and any exceptions, especially when exception rates get high, um, it'll notify us. So that's really nice. Okay. Very cool. Very cool. Wow. So I think we kind of covered everything. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, what's coming up next and some of the challenges you guys are dealing with now? Yeah, absolutely. Forward? Um so we're always feeding new data into the system, right? And we, we, some of these are increasingly getting bigger and bigger. I mean, satellite imagery. We're going to have multiple scenes per month uh, covering the entire globe. Or not the entire globe, the United States, at least for now. Um, eventually the entire globe, though. Um, and so uh, we've also got these tractors uh, that we're going to start putting devices in um, to be able to get the data off the bus there. Um, I mean, just all the chatter alone on that bus, it's, um, um, there's several gigabytes per hour that are generated on that tractor alone. Um, we don't use all of that, but there, there's a lot of data that's going on, uh, just on their, uh, out in their tractors. Okay. Um, we're able to just continually grabbing new data sources like that and start um, putting them in. So there was, uh, just kind of different, a few different tiers that we went through of, uh, value that we start to providing to the farmers over time. Uh, initially, we did a lot of data collection where we were just grabbing that from them uh, directly. Um, we started then able to be able to go back and provide them data um, where we realized that, hey, it's not just about collecting data from them, but really pushing a lot of the rainfall, a lot of the soil data, a lot of the market data, whatever we were able to get, um, be able to push it to them directly. Um, and so we're just working at this point on automating it more and more, automatically collecting data from them instead of forcing them to type it in themselves. Um, and eventually get to a point where we'll be able to take all this data that we've collected and be able to start running some analysis on them uh, to be able to uh, improve uh, their uh, agricultural practices so that they're able to farm their fields more efficiently. Right, right. So 
you know, at a certain point, it sounds like you're going to be able to actually say, no, actually, you should be focusing on this portion of your field for the next day or so. Yeah. Or, or something like that, right? We might be able to go to them and say, like, hey, we know uh, there's a problem spot in that field. You know there's a problem spot in that field. There's a sandbar there. It's never going to get more yield than what you're getting out of it right now. But there is this part over here that looks like it's yielding good, and it is, but with using a little bit um, more fertilizer or maybe uh, if you had a little bit more irrigation or um, whatever the limiting factor is, help them identify um, this is the part of the field that needs more attention or maybe even a little less attention. Maybe you're using more water than you even need and you can cut back and save on your water there. Um, whatever the case may be, uh, help them optimize a little bit more around what their field needs and uh, to be able to really get the best out of their field and to uh, also use resources efficiently in the process. Yeah, no, that's really cool because it sounds like where you guys started was really just saying, all right, let's help you do what you're already doing just a little easier, right, with the CRUD app. Um, which they were pretty much just doing on paper. Um, and then you sort of said, all right, let's start taking on more of that. Um, bringing in the rainfall data, for instance, into one place, bringing in the tractor data into one place. So then once you've done that, you can move on to other things and say, all right, now that we have all this, we can actually be really smart about um, what you should and should be doing moving forward. That's really cool. Um, do you want to talk a little bit about, um, so I guess data is the, is the next big focus for you guys mm -hmm. and trying to make yeah, sense of yeah. everything that's coming into the system. Yeah. Providing, being able to, to read in that data and analyze it and provide insight to the farmers, not even just being able to tell them what to do, but to give them, give them the data that they can even intuitively act upon that they, that they didn't before, that they didn't have before. Right. Right. And really moving towards a uh, push model um did you guys talk a little did you talk about uh fertilizers and and seeds I yeah don't know if you touched I mean, on that's that part of using your resources more efficiently right is mm -hmm. not only will be able to uh say that hey this is the part of your field that uh, needs like more water attention something like that but maybe we'll be able to you're able to use their tractors to do variable rate seeding variable rate applications of fertilizers and pesticides to be able to say that hey your field, your field is not a uniform uh, thing. It's a very large area with a lot of very distinct characteristics uh, in different sections. And by using a higher seeding rate here, you're able to get a bit more yield. Um, maybe you don't need as much fertilizer in that section. Um, able to make more efficient use of resources to be able to make um, uh, ultimately get more efficient yields. Um, and also to use a little bit less fertilizer, a little bit less um, pesticide where you don't really need it. Okay. Very cool. And so you guys are hiring, right? Yes, we are. Um, always hiring, uh, looking at doubling the team this year. Uh, we were fortunate to raise a Series uh, B um, from a bunch of existing investors, as well as uh, Sam Altman and uh, um, SV Angel uh, just at the end of last year. And so a uh, lot of cool stuff. Um, we're always looking for people who uh, have any sort of talent they want to bring to the team. A lot of engineers always. So um, anybody who's interested can always go to farmologs.com slash jobs and uh, look at what's available there and just shoot us an email if they're interested in contributing. Gotcha. So data science, you guys need data science folks. You need mobile engineers. Yep. Okay. Everything. Gotcha. Cool. Well, thanks a lot, guys. This was awesome. Um, really appreciate you taking the time and software for farmers. That's what it's about. All right.